Welcome, everybody. We're so glad you're with us today for this Lighthouse Briefing. Uh, we are coming to you from the Independent Institute here in Oakland, California, which is right across the bay from San Francisco. Uh, we offer these Lighthouse Briefings from time to time to our key friends and supporters to make sure that uh, you have what you might call a front row seat on some of the developing issues of the day. And so thanks everybody who's joining us from around the country. Uh, we're so grateful to you who are members of our Lighthouse Society and maybe a few of you who are just about to become Lighthouse Society members. Uh, your support makes all of our work possible. Uh, today, it is my privilege to welcome uh, to our studio, as it were virtually, uh, Dr. Philip Magnus, uh, who is a research fellow with us and also with the American Institute for Economic Research. Welcome, Dr. Magnus. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. Is it okay if I call you Phil? That'd be great. Okay, super. Uh, well, so uh, you've got quite a track record behind you. I mean, you're a historian. You've got a PhD from um, George Mason University. Uh, you have published a number of interesting books, the most recent one of which is called, very provocatively titled, The 1619 Project, A Critique. And you said this was just released, correct? That is correct. And if they want to see it, where should they go? So the easiest is to uh, to go to Amazon.com. Uh, we have it up there or AIER.org. We also sell it through our website. Okay, great. Yeah, well, I want to read that myself, the 1619 Project, a critique. You also have other popular articles that have appeared in Newsweek, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, uh, and so forth. But today, you're going to be talking to us specifically uh, about the origin, harms, and political persistence of the COVID lockdowns. All of us have been affected by this. And I was tempted to get my uh, my little mask out here and ask you, how many people's lives am I going to save if I stick this mask on me, Phil? Well, it's all going to depend on uh, which week you are asking the modelers because they keep <laughs> changing their projections. That's the that's the trouble, isn't it? I mean, for so many ordinary people, and I count myself as very ordinary, it's just really been confusing because you get early on, sort of last spring, uh, people like even Dr. Fauci were saying. Um, uh, well, one thing, and then they were saying something else. What was the line uh, from our experts back in the spring of 20? Well, originally, they were uh, all arguing that uh, the general public should not adopt masks at all. And the claim was that masks only work in hospital settings or that the evidence simply wasn't there to say either way on uh, how beneficial these things were. So Fauci went on 60 Minutes, national TV, the Surgeon General sent out a tweet, CDC and WHO also had similar lines. They all said, don't wear masks. If you're part of the general public, you don't need these. Wow. So then uh, things changed. Now, things changed uh, partly because we were told that uh, new evidence emerged that they didn't have before. I guess that maybe maybe something to that. It's just hard to tell why suddenly it went from they're not helpful to you've got to wear them and then to mandates. Right, In fact, right. President Biden, where does President Biden stand now on ma mask mandating? So he has been in favor of mask mandates since back in the campaign. And in fact, he made it one of his, uh, his pledges. Uh, if you elect me, we will have 100 days of mandatory masking. And the last version I heard of it, he had extended 100 days to 365 days. He's saying through maybe next December that we can uh, expect to be wearing masks. Now, but the mandate part is the part that worries me. I mean, he can make people wear them on federal property, I guess. Can he make right. people wear them otherwise? So it gets into tricky constitutional area. He's, uh, he's kind of... Uh, hedged his, his language here in saying that, yes, he wants to mandate them on, uh, on a national basis. 
and he wants to do this through executive orders or uh, pressure on governors where they can uh, uh, you know, tie some of their funding to it. Yeah, that's the usual thing. You can the federal right. government can get the states to require things of individuals by threatening to withdraw federal funding that goes to the states. Exactly. It's called the miracle of modern federalism, <laughs> by which right. the central power gets to dictate everything, but only really through their control of certain uh, fiscal purse strings on the states. So that might work. That might work. Um, you have questions about the mask mandates. Um, I, I noticed with great interest your piece in the Wall Street Journal, which was published uh, back in November, as I recall. I think I got a, uh, I'm gonna, getting some ads that I don't want to see here, but uh, in uh, November, here's this piece, A Case for Mask Mandate Rests on Bad Data by Philip Magnus. Um, and this kind of was stunning people because the mandate seemed to be the patriotic thing to do, but you questioned the necessity of the mandate. Can you explain? Absolutely. So uh, there are, I guess, two factors going on here. One is what the modelers to say, the uh, epidemiologists, and in particular, this was a group out of the University of Washington. And the second is what, what's the public actually doing on its own? What does the real data show separate and apart from the models? Well, we have real data going back to very early on in the pandemic uh, because both the CDC and I found, I think five separate polling entities have uh, on a regular basis surveyed the general public to see who's wearing masks when they go out. And this survey data has been overwhelming in showing a voluntary adoption of masking dating back to all the way back around uh, last June or July. Uh, I use July of 2020 because that's when uh, the mask threshold in the United States hit uh, about 80%. Mm -hmm. And it's been there ever since. It stayed at that level just through voluntary compliance. Uh, so we, so we, we've seen the public just very largely adopt this as a, a measure that they're taking for their own risk aversion. So why then in October, um, which wasn't that long ago, did the journal Nature Medicine um, make the claims it did at that point in the process if mask wearing was already so high? Well, this is the th uh, an error I discovered. There was a study that was published out of the University of Washington's IHME team. Uh, they're the uh, epidemiology modelers. And one of the premises of the study was they were using faulty statistics from back in April and May that claimed less than half of Americans were wearing masks. You remember what was going on back in April and May? Mm -hmm. This is when Fauci and all these other uh, uh, public health experts are saying, you don't need to wear a mask. And they never accounted for the change in the data. They never accounted that uh, uh, Americans adopted masks at a rate of 80% by July onward. So yeah, you say here that the, the projected, projected number of lives saved and the implied case for a mask mandate are based on a faulty specific a statistic. And again, specifically, what was faulty again, just so we get that in our heads? Yeah, so they claimed that only 49% of Americans were wearing masks. Which was old data. That's, that's old data from uh, April and May. Uh, it has no relevance to right now. And then, in fact, it was about 80%. Exactly. Yeah, I, I just was looking at the data that you were, were presenting to the public. Tell me if I've got this. Is this the right chart? I think this tells us uh, the story. Yeah, that it is. So uh, the blue line, what you see there, that is the uh, survey data where they ask people, how often are you wearing a mask when you go out into public? And uh, it, that tracks the percentage of always or almost always. So people that are mask compliant. And what you see is it started out very low. Again, that's when Fauci is saying, don't wear a mask. 
And then over May to mid June or so, it starts to rise very rapidly. And then you get to about July and it hovers around 80% and it stayed there ever since, all the way up until uh, just a, a week or two ago was the most recent poll mm -hmm. and it's still hovering at 80%. That's amazing. And so um, you compare that with then what they had been projecting, right? Right, right. So this published paper, that's the orange line. You can see the blue line of what it actually is. The published model that came out of the University of Washington is the orange line, and that's how much they said masking had been adopted. And then they, uh, you know, this is only through late September, early October. So they had projected it out and they had it topping out at only 49% when in reality it's 80%. Yeah, that's a pretty stunning uh, difference. So, in other words, what you what you revealed in your Wall Street Journal piece is that the uh, evidential rationale for the mask mandate being called for just didn't didn't exist. That's exactly it. And if you remember back the rhetoric in the fall, um, CDC director Fauci, NIH director Joe Biden, all the media pundits. I think I counted over 120 newspaper articles all quoted this statistic and said, if we have a national mask mandate, we are going to save 130,000 lives by February. Wow. So that was the promise that was made, but that's right. all built on the faulty statistic. Right. So what you're uh, finding really, uh, certainly proves, demonstrates without a doubt, is that the alleged benefit of the mask mandate wasn't gonna be much, if anything. That's exactly it. But you're, you're, obviously your data doesn't address directly the question of whether masking is helpful to reduce contagion. That's not something you were addressing, right? Uh, simply, I'm simply trying to hold the scientists to account to make sure that uh, you know, their claims stand up to the scholarly rigor uh, that we should expect from a top journal like Nature Medicine. Right, I mean, and to put this crudely, you weren't telling people to go home and cough on grandma. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> quite, quite the contrary. I'm saying, uh, I'm telling Americans is that, you know, they are doing what uh, the health experts are advising on their own through voluntary measures. And that is adopting masks when they go into public and especially high risk places. Yeah. So, you know, the, the evidence is, is quite compelling, um, as you put it, but the evidence supports, I think, a larger contention, at least in my mind, which is that, uh, uh, Americans in particular, in our national character seems to be that if you tell us that something is really good and it would be helpful to do it, uh, we'll probably do it unless you say you have to do it. We're going to exactly. force you. To, we're going to force you to do it. Yeah. When you start attaching penalties to it, that's when right. uh, it actually becomes counterproductive. Yeah, exactly. It's it's kind of a weird thing. I mean, you get to the um, uh, the the point of coercion. And you actually might harm the case uh, if you're trying exactly. to advance a public health measure of this type. Uh, so now, um, you know, having reviewed that a little bit, let me just take a quick pause here and remember uh, that our uh, uh, participants on our call today, Lighthouse Society members, uh, are just about to um, be able to chime in themselves. If you would like, if you're on our call and you'd like to uh, raise a question directly. At the bottom of your screen, there's a little raise hand icon. And if you click that, I will see your raised hand icon and I'll open the mic for you. If you're a participant, you can ask uh, Phil Magnus a question directly in your own voice. Uh, you can also put questions in the chat box or the Q&A. And I am looking uh, there to watch uh, my questions. Here's one I've already got already from one of our friends, Terry. Um, glad to have you on the call, Terry. Uh, 
Terry says, the Biden claim that 200,000 lives would be saved if masks were worn was clearly false. Has anyone pointed this out? What do you think, Phil? Well, I tried to raise it directly with the editors of the journal that published that piece back in October. I tried to raise it directly with uh, you know, several of the media outlets that covered it. And initially, they just kind of blew me off. They said, uh, you know, we aren't going to look into that. Uh, we, uh, we peer reviewed this piece and it's correct. And I'm saying, no, here's the actual data. I can show you the surveys. I've, I can show you clear evidence and stack it up against your model. I sent them iterations of those graphs you just showed. And the journal editors had, uh, wanted nothing to do with it. Um, it did get some attention with a website called Retraction Watch, which is kind of like a science watchdog. Mm -hmm. And they actually ran a, a nice little story about uh, kind of like the mini scandal that had emerged around this model. Uh, and that, that's what eventually led to the Wall Street Journal piece. Well, I'm, I'm grateful the Wall Street Journal gave you a platform. But, you know, you do wonder what's going on. Um, you hear constantly, you know, we've got to follow the science. You've got to follow the science, <clears throat> which actually I agree with. But the nature of science is that it is continually testing to see if conclusions can be falsified yeah. by new data. And it would seem that there was some kind of an impulse to protect those conclusions against potential falsification from new evidence. Is, is that a way of summarizing the problem? I think that's entirely the problem. Uh, we even see it in the, the response that the University of Washington team made to my Wall Street Journal piece, as they wrote a letter to the editor where they basically said, yeah, uh, I guess we, we don't dispute what Magnus is saying. The, uh, the surveys show that mask rates have increased, uh, but he's wrong because it's important that we must all wear masks. Yeah. No, notice the unstated and really non-scientific assumption behind that position, which is uh, that if something is good for people, then it's even better to coercively require them to do it with penalties. That is exactly it. Where does that assumption come from? Why does it so dominate our political and scientific and academic classes, I wonder? I mean, I'm going beyond your expertise because you're a historian now, know. you know? Like, why does that assumption so dominate those uh, intellectual type people? Well, what, one of the observations I've been making throughout the coronavirus uh, pandemic is that the experts that have been advising policy are very technocratic in their disposition. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't view human beings as, uh, as like individuals with rights. They view them almost like if you're playing a SimCity style computer game, where if you, uh, you click a button or you check a box, this modifies human behavior just as the computer would formulaically say, and that's going to change the course of the pandemic. So it's a really top-down, almost like uh, if, you, if you imagine Soviet-style command and control economies applied to epidemiology, that's how these people think about the world. But of course, we, they don't have direct control over these enforcement measures. They have to persuade politicians. Exactly, exactly. And they, how, do they, how do they persuade them? Well, politicians, whenever you have a, um, a crisis, like to be seen as the person that's doing something, the, the person that's in charge and is going to deliver our society from this crisis, from this pandemic. Uh, it could be from the hurricane, could be from the deep freeze that's now in Texas. There's always a politician wanting to stand in front of the camera and say, listen to me, I have the solutions. And here are the uh, epidemiologists delivering these supposed solutions to them on a silver platter in the form of models. Yeah. Oh, boy. Politicians, if they're not seen as doing something, especially if it's a crisis, uh, then, you know, they're in trouble. And of course, this goes back to kind of a dynamic of a popular uh, government, which is to say that 
uh, there is always pressure from the mass voting public uh, in one direction or another. And if the mass voting public has been trained to feel that governmental action is always um, warranted if there's a, a crisis, then they'll put pressure on the politicians. The politicians won't be reelected unless they you know, conform to the pressure. Um, the, the solution, I mean, I'm speaking now as kind of a political philosopher, which is more my, my field. You know, there are two solutions to that kind of a problem. One is you, you eliminate popular government and let people not have a say, which is kind of like a cure worse than the disease. Or alternatively, um, efforts are made non-governmentally to ensure that the, the great mass of citizens is well informed so that they don't press their politicians to do harmful stuff. And of course, right. that's what we're about here at the Independent. And that's, I think that's what your career is about, too, if I'm not no, mistaken. Entirely, entirely. <laughs> we're so grateful for that. Uh, here's another question coming from our um, participants. And again, thank you for um, putting your questions in the Q&A or the chat box. Um, and again, if you want to speak directly, which we welcome, you can just press raise your hand and I will open the mic for you to speak directly to Dr. Phil Magnus. Um, uh, this is a very informed questioner here who says, Berenson pointed out the Denmark mask study was kept from being published until after the election. Any comments? Now, I don't know what that is, but maybe you do, and this questioner certainly does. Right. So there was a scientific study that came out of a team of university researchers in Denmark uh, where they basically asked the question about the efficacy of masks. So separate and apart from the rate at which people are using them, asking basically, uh, you know, do they protect the people that are wearing uh, masks from viral transmission? And it was a, a mixed bag of a study. It didn't show conclusive results uh, uh, terribly in one direction or the other, but it, it was enough to raise some skepticism. And interestingly enough, this is consistent with what the epidemiology literature said before about March 2020, is that the, the verdict's out on masks. We just simply don't have good data on it. We have scientific theories of why they may work, uh, but those theories are, are, are not the magic bullet that they were being sold as. Um, so the study was, was produced. It, uh, it was in line with that literature. And yet it ran into uh, political opposition because the, uh, the narrative of the moment was more in line with what the University of Washington researchers were doing. And that was, you need to wear a mask, whether the evidence says uh, it uh, is warranted or not, or whether the evidence even says that people are wearing them or not. Uh, so what has happened is the politics have stepped into this uh, entire supposedly scientific discussion, and they seem to be leading the direction that it's going in. Well, I just love to hear you talk this way because we've been hearing kind of ranting and raving for the past, you know, six months that, you know, we've got to follow the science and lockdown and all this stuff. We have to wear masks in every context. Uh, but your point is that actually there's more political pressure behind those imperatives than there is scientific data. Yeah. And where there's data to the contrary, it seems to be a little suppressed. Um, uh, that's troubling. It's deeply disturbing about what we've seen over the last year. And I'd, I'd even diagnose it by saying that a lot of the scientists themselves have become intoxicated with their access to political power. Uh, Anthony Fauci is probably the worst case example of this. Here's a guy like, don't get between him and a camera. Uh, he <laughs> likes to be on TV. He likes to be seen giving advice. And he, he's worshipped and, and given all sorts of accolades in the media, even though if you look at his actual track record, 
it's a nonstop stream of flip-flopping and self-contradiction. And, you know, the prominent example we already mentioned is that on the masks. But uh, you can go to other areas, uh, like the lockdowns. I found a quote from him on CNN in January of 2020, where uh, the Wuhan region of China had just gone under lockdown, and they asked him about that. Yes. And what does Fauci say? He says, well, uh, I can never imagine that coming to the United States. I can never imagine us shutting down a U.S. city like New York or Los Angeles. Right. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's, that's pretty incredible. I mean, you know, I, I would like to and I, and I will try uh, to assume the best about his motives. Um, I mean, I, think, I, I really think it's very um, compelling when you have studied a subject for a long time and you you feel you have a lot of information and you really know in your heart of hearts that you want to do good. You, sure. You may well be tempted to overstate your case, uh, but it's for the good. Um, right. Uh, right. And, you know, your one's own good intentions can sometimes get in the way, oddly enough, of accuracy and candor in science. Um, so I, I do want to give him credit for good intentions. But at the same time, I'm troubled, um, you know, by this track record. Here, here's a, a question coming from one of our panelists. Uh, who says a large issue is that in the San Francisco Bay Area, many cities such as Dublin and Livermore, which is nearby where we are here in the East Bay, uh, these cities will find non-mask wearers. And recently, a uh, city of Pleasanton decided not to find them. Yet California states you only have to wear a mask outside if you are closer than six feet uh, of each other or going into the buildings, et cetera. The public must be very confused because there's different jurisdictions at the, well, federal has a very narrow jurisdiction, but they try and exercise it indirectly. States have a broader jurisdiction than the, than the, the cities. They have a different jurisdiction. Uh, the public must be very confused. Uh, is that, have you seen that? That's absolutely the case. And this comes from the mixed messaging. It comes from contradiction. It comes from 11 months now of people making proclamations that do not come true. And in fact, uh, they switch their position a little bit later. This is one of the great tragedies of uh, the last year, uh, in addition to the pandemic itself, is that the scientific community, by trying to uh, hubristically uh, offer advice and projections that policymakers then act on as if it were like gospel handed down to them, end up being wrong, but rather than admit that they were wrong, they just stay on the same course and advocate the same policies. Right. Oh, that's troubling, isn't it? Good grief. Um, can you tell us a little bit about um, uh, where you see mask mandates and social distancing going like over the next six months? Everybody kind of wants to know you're, right. you're not a prophet, um, but you do follow trends and you follow the subject more closely than many of us. Where do you think this is going over the next six months? Yeah. So, the, as the rate of vaccination increases, I think this is one of the, uh, the foremost fronts that you're going to start to see some tension and pushback against mask wearing. Uh, basically, because people realize that, you know, if they've been vaccinated, they've gone through all the course, or if they've had the disease and they've naturally recovered from it uh, and have immunities from it. So those two work in conjunction uh, to give society what's referred to as herd immunity. That's uh, mm -hmm. vaccinated immunity plus people that have recovered from the disease. And that's actually getting to be a very large segment of the public right now. Uh, the question becomes, why are these people uh, wearing masks? Why do they still have to wear masks? And I think as that continues, you're going to start seeing people uh, questioning the conventional wisdom. And you'll, you may, uh, within a few months, start to see those, uh, those polling numbers go down again uh, on the rate of, uh, of Americans that are wearing masks in the public. Yeah, that seems likely. Um, here's another comment. Uh, 
Jane says, I live in Southern California where the mask Karens, <laughs> that's her term, mask <laughs> Karens, are quick to harass anyone whose mask is either missing or worn incorrectly. Now I wonder if the same mentality may affect the vaccine rollout. Oh boy, I don't know if you're able to comment on that. Any thoughts? Well, masks are distinctive in this respect because they're very visible. You Extremely, can see whether yeah. someone's wearing them or not. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I shudder to think of the thought that we all have to wear like a badge that say we've been vaccinated or not. Uh, but uh, I think masks, because of the, the their visibility, uh, they just invite um, busy bodies in public to go around and appoint themselves, uh, you know, self-enforcers uh, to hector people. And I've seen this myself in the grocery store uh, where, uh, you know, a, a perfectly healthy, fit young person who doesn't work at the store uh, may see uh, like, like an elderly man who's not wearing the mask right and comes darting across the, uh, uh, the aisle uh, to get up in this person's face and start barking at them about how you need to put your mask over your nose. And, and you start asking the question, well, number one, is this young person now exposing themselves to closer contact than they would have if they just let it slide? <laughs> that's ironic, isn't it? That's deeply ironic. Uh, and number two, just the decline in civility that's come out of it. Uh, I mean, we don't know the reason why a person wasn't wearing their mask the right way. Uh, and when you take it upon yourself to be an enforcer, uh, this is a presumption of knowledge that uh, a lot of these people simply don't have, and it just turns into a degradation of the uh, uh, of civil discourse, of civil exchange. Uh, it makes us view other human beings as like the enemy walking through the uh, the aisles of the grocery store. That's just a horrible way to live. Yeah, and it's kind of a you know a policing one another, a kind of uh, uh, I don't know what you call it, the mentality where you're trying to rat on other people. It's worrisome. I mean. <clears throat> Certainly, again, to be clear, you're not saying, and I'm not saying certainly that you don't want to go take off your mask and cough on your 100-year-old grandmother. Right. Uh, masking has had beneficial effects in different contexts and different diseases, not just COVID. Um, there are times and places where it may well be quite appropriate. But what we're talking about are two things. One is the coercive mandate by governments. Right. <clears throat> which seems worrisome. And the other is this social shaming, busybody ratting attitude that seems to be growing among certain sections of the public. Neither of those seems particularly healthy. Yeah, yeah. Here's a comment from one of our participants who says, uh, Dr. Fauci, uh, he just sees the virus. He doesn't consider other aspects of society like the economy or the effect on kids of schools being closed. Policymaking is more, it's about more than just quote unquote the science. You have to weigh all the costs and benefits. And I think that's an interesting point. Your, your, your comments on that? I think that's absolutely the case. You have epidemiologists, uh, Fauci is you know foremost among them, but uh, this also extends to like our friend Neil Ferguson of Imperial College who made all the uh, the bad model projections back in the, in the spring uh, to many of these other experts that you see on TV is that they are all assuming that they, they can approach the pandemic from their own narrow area of expertise. And it's resulted in them excluding or even neglecting areas of society that fall outside of strict virus mitigation. Mm -hmm. uh, so they don't pay attention to the unemployment effects that have come from the lockdowns. And we absolutely know from good data now that uh, unemployment is much worse in the states that remained locked down versus states like South Dakota and Florida that either stayed open or re remained uh, or resumed normal life uh, early on in the pandemic. 
Uh, they aren't paying attention to other areas of even public health. So like uh, mental health mm -hmm. has been strained to the extreme by the lockdowns. We're seeing opioid abuse at historically unprecedented rates. Substance abuse deaths are skyrocketing. Uh, we have a lot of anecdotal data about young people that are committing suicide just out of depression because they've been cut off from the world. Uh, these are horrific public health issues that are outside of the scope of the virus. And yet you hear Fauci and some of these other experts, they barely even bat an eye at them because they're so focused on the uh, coronavirus itself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, I, I can credit such people with good intentions <clears throat> because they know what they know. Exactly. Um, let's say if they're an epidemiologist, um, that's their particular specialization. <clears throat> but at the same time, to be an expert in virology or epidemiology, it doesn't follow that you're an expert in how to balance the costs and benefits. Um, I fear that to some degree, in the name of public health, we've adopted um, some lockdown measures um, which exceed the necessity and had bad public health consequences. So, you know, we, we want to protect public health and then we jeopardize public health because we're trying to protect public health. I mean, particularly <clears throat> among what, what some people call, you know, uh, disadvantaged communities or whatever, people who have lower incomes uh, and are more vulnerable economically, uh, their lives have been tremendously damaged by the economic lockdowns. <clears throat> Don't tell me that that's not going to have a bad effect upon their ability to get health care and then upon their health. It's going to. It's going to make them more vulnerable to health problems, including COVID. Yeah. Uh, so it, these are complicated issues uh, that a degree in virology really doesn't equip you to comprehensively address. And, you know, to be fair, no one has enough omniscience to figure all these things out. But at least uh, we need to avoid a situation where there's a foreclosure and alleged comprehensive knowledge uh, clouds out other voices and other evidence, as you've shown us. Uh, we've got a question here from actually a friend of mine. Luke is on the, on the call with us, and he writes this. Um, <clears throat> I think he may be a physician. He says, um, if I've got the right Luke in mind here, he says a recent Lancet article quoted in today's Wall Street Journal is another example of a previously august scientific periodical putting out a blatantly political hack job. Their public policy and health in the Trump era is an amazing laundry list of problems linked to Trump, a classic example of mistaking association for causality, completely unilluminating. So I guess <clears throat> uh, Luke has been reading the Lancet and I missed that article. Did you see the one he's referring to? Uh, I, I can't say which one in particular, but I, I've seen that trend and that pattern both in The Lancet and journals like Nature, all these top scientific august bodies that are supposedly um, are, are, are leading voices of top-notch scientific research are violating basic norms of the scientific method. Uh, the causal inference question has been fascinating to me because I'm a social scientist. I, I have training in, uh, in economics, but uh, we use the same tools. Uh, we, we try to determine cause and effect by using observed data versus a counterfactual. The counterfactual mm -hmm. being what didn't happen, right. what would have been the other case. And there were very sophisticated econometric methods and techniques to tease this out. And I've been doing some survey work in these top journals, places like Nature, The Lancet, uh, uh, Science, these, these uh, supposed uh, uh, very top of the profession types of journals to see if they use these techniques, even basic causal inference, when they're making a claim that says lockdowns work or masks work or social distancing works. And it turns out that uh, 
the uh, vast majority of those articles don't even perform the basic statistical tests that you need to pass muster in a, uh, a typical social science journal. Wow. So that when empirical scientists presume to speak to you know, policy and public interest issues, again, their knowledge leads them to be overconfident, to overstate the case, and then actually to be unscientific. Exactly. Exactly. You're, you're not a, an empirical physical scientist, you're a social scientist and historian, but this is where your expertise actually comes in really handy for the rest of us because right. you're used to watching for weaknesses in links of evidential chains. And you're, you're used to looking for social phenomena whereby mass opinion uh, gets a, a momentum of its own and then overrides other evidence. That's what you look for as a historian. That's exactly. Uh, you know, I, I liken it to how economics was done in the 1950s and 60s when the Keynesians were in ascendance. And they all had these fancy, nice, tight models on, you know, you pull a lever and you inject a stimulus and the economy behaves in a certain way. You, uh, you loosen the, the money supply, you have a monetary injection and the economy does X, Y, and Z. Uh, they thought they had it down to a science and it's just all turning knobs and pulling levers. And you can project uh, the course of which what things would have done based on what the model tells you. We found over the past half century that this doesn't work at all. In fact, its predictive ability is very, very poor. Well, fast forward to 2021, the epidemiologists are doing the same thing that the Keynesians made the mistake of doing back in the 1950s. They haven't updated their statistical techniques or their social science to, uh, uh, to actually reflect reality and human behavior. Here's another really interesting comment um, uh, from one of our participants. It'll be interesting to see what political spin is put on the topic of herd immunity. Right. A piece in today's Wall Street Journal predicts we will reach it in April. Uh, you may recall that there was a great Barrington declaration last fall on the same topic, and it was met with charges that the scientists were murderers. So a couple things there. Um, there's a prediction will reach her immunity in April, which is sooner than many anticipated. And then there's, of course, the Great Barrington Declaration, which I think you know a great deal about. Am I right? I do. I, I was a uh, participant in that conference, uh, one of the people that interviewed our, our uh, scientists that we brought in. Uh, so I had a very intimate connection to that conversation as it emerged, and I saw the backlash firsthand. Fascinating. I mean, Great Barrington is where your, your organization has its headquarters. Exactly. And did they convene the meetings at your place? We did. Uh, we did. We brought in uh, three uh, top epidemiologists. This is Martin Koldorf of Harvard, Snatcher Gupta of Oxford, and uh, Jay Bhattacharya of, of Stanford. And these are uh, just people with impeccable scientific credentials. Uh, they really know how pandemics work and the literature on that. And we brought them in just to have a, uh, an honest scientific evaluation of the evidence of lockdowns. Uh, the conclusion being that lockdowns basically do not work and they impose severe social uh, and economic harms external to the fact that we've even locked down. Uh, so, so it's a, um, a policy with very little upside and huge negative downsides. And they made basically a, a diagnosis of the pandemic course up until that stage saying we had erred, we had focused on general population lockdowns and avoided protecting the vulnerable, the elderly, the people in nursing homes, when that should have been the real focus. Yeah, they called for focused protection, right? Exactly. exactly. Which is kind of like the opposite of uh, what Governor Cuomo in New York did. He did, I, instead of focused protection, he did focused attack. 
on yes. those in the nursing homes. It's the complete opposite. And this has been an error that the uh, the epidemiologists and the politicians listening to them have made since the beginning of the pandemic. I go back to that Neil Ferguson model out of uh, Imperial College London mm -hmm. that convinced the U.S. government to lock down. If you read the original paper, the model's based on, it has a strange little caveat at the end. It says, oh, by the way, we don't know how to model this disease in nursing homes and prisons, so therefore we're omitting that from our conclusions. Wow. So the one area... Well, I mean, they were honest to say so, but then people were, ignored yeah. that. Right, right. They, they said, this is the limitation of our study. Uh, and it turns out that nursing homes are, are the main vulnerability point of, uh, of almost every country that suffered a severe outbreak around the world. Um, now, how many people ultimately signed the Great Barrington Declaration? Do you remember? So we have had over 700,000 from the general public. Of those, uh, we're approaching about 50,000 that are either uh, public health professors, experts like that, or medical doctors. Wow. That's an incredible bulk of people, and especially the latter group who have uh, credentials and uh, relevant expert knowledge. Um, how could anyone call this group murderers? What's the right. deal? They just, they just ignored what they said, I guess, right? Right. Well, they, they, they accused, uh, accused the scientists of being murderers. They, they claimed that uh, us and sponsoring the, uh, the conference, that we were involved in a eugenics plot to kill off the old people, uh, just all sorts of these horrendous inflammatory attacks. And yet what they were basically doing is they were denying uh, well-known epidemiological science, well-known sciences of how viruses and immunology works, and that is this concept of herd immunity. I'll paraphrase the three scientists we had here. They said to, to deny herd immunity would be like a physicist denying the theory of gravity. Mm -hmm. uh, it's something that happens. It's a biological fact. Uh, basic definition of it is herd immunity is the cumulative effect of people that have naturally acquired immunity by having the disease and recovering, and people that have been vaccinated against the disease. And those two work in conjunction until you reach a threshold of the population that is immune, and that stops the virus from, uh, from spreading, that impedes the spread of the virus to a point where it actually turns the corner and starts to diminish. Uh, this happens with every disease that we've known of of human history uh, mm -hmm. that's a respiratory virus. So to say that herd immunity doesn't exist is like saying gravity doesn't exist is the, uh, the, the, the gist of the takeaway. And that's all the Great Barrington Declaration asserted was uh, let's recognize known basic biological facts and make policy in, in conjunction with those facts instead of trying to fight it or trying to uh, manipulate it from the outside, which is what the lockdowns do. There was a really a libelous or a defamatory mischaracterization of the Great Barrington Declaration. Um, I heard accounts and read accounts saying, oh, well, they just think we should just go willy-nilly to herd immunity and not take any precautions at all, which was not at all what they said. They said they should take precautions to protect the vulnerable and assess sectors and take uh, measures accordingly so as to move toward herd immunity while protecting those who would be hurt by the progress toward herd immunity. That was a very nuanced um, prescription and it got totally got lost in the, in the, I don't know, the static. Yeah, not only a nuanced prescription, but it's precisely the thing that people like Governor Cuomo failed to do. Uh, so we, we were advocating basically the opposite of the Cuomo plan. The Cuomo plan right. was you take people out of hospitals with uh, coronavirus and you move them into the nursing homes to take up the excess capacity of the medical system. What does that do? 
it infects everyone else in the nursing homes. And these are elderly people that are of high vulnerability. And you had in some of these nursing homes, uh, like fatality rates that exceeded 10%. Uh, I ran the numbers for the state of Massachusetts, which had a similar Cuomo-like policy. And one in 10 residents of Massachusetts nursing homes have died of the coronavirus uh, over the last year, which is just horrific. Uh, mm -hmm. far in excess of anything that's happening in the general population. Mm -hmm. and all we were saying in the Great Barrington Declaration is, no, it doesn't have to be this way. You mm -hmm. can stop this by actually taking measures that protect the nursing homes. You could potentially pay workers to live on site and actually cordon themselves off mm -hmm. uh, from the outside world. You could arrange food delivery. You could uh, have rapid testing at the door of the nursing home, things that we were not doing back in the spring. And in some places, we still are not doing. Uh, these are easy measures to enact, and they're much less costly than shutting down all of society, and they'd actually be effective in the one area where we know the vulnerability exists. Um, we are moving toward a landing here in our program today. I just want to mention that uh, at least one of our participants has already indicated to me that he was a signatory of your Great Barrington Declaration, so thank you for doing that, friend. Uh, and uh, he also reminds us uh, here uh, in the chat box, which I'm, I'm reading all your comments as we go, uh, points out that the case of Scott Atlas was revealing yes. politically and rather disturbing. Scott Atlas, uh, well-known scientist from Stanford Hoover, he's probably a signatory of the Great Barrington Declaration, I, I wouldn't be surprised. And he has now been hounded by uh, faculty colleagues at Stanford and been under attack. Um, can you comment on his case? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, I have high respect for what Scott Atlas did. I mean, he, he really put his neck out on the line, not because he wanted a, uh, a political solution to the pandemic, but because he saw that the policy uh, that we adopted back in the spring was so far askew of the best scientific evidence we had. We saw that uh, he saw that the policy was harming people. Uh, I first noticed Scott Atlas, I think it was back in March or April, he was one of the first other voices that was making some of the same arguments that I was making, that uh, some of the scientists that we were working with were making. And, you know, he, he, he joined the Trump administration, not because he wanted political power, but because he wanted to right the ship. He wanted to uh, uh, correct some of the errors that Fauci and Deborah Burks and all these other uh, epidemiologists and virologists advised uh, early on in the pandemic and, and really took a, a, a personal cost. I mean, he, he stepped away from a, 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 a very comfortable, high paying job to go to Washington, to move to Washington for a few months and try to right the ship of, uh, of what the coronavirus task force was doing. And he immediately was vilified for it because he deviated from the media and the politicians favored uh, political solution, which was lockdowns. He questioned them. And uh, it didn't matter what evidence he brought to bear in the table. There was a, uh, an interview that Anthony Fauci gave a few weeks ago uh, where, uh, you know, the friendly media interviewer says, well, what did you think of Scott Atlas? And Fauci's like, yeah, this guy showed up with like a briefcase of scientific studies and, uh, and tried to present them to me, but I knew he was wrong already without even looking at the scientific studies. So I, I just thought I wasn't going to listen to this guy. Wow. And, and you know, that's a, that's a, uh, a complete collapse of our scientific method when you're not updating your priors based on new evidence, which is what Atlas was trying to do. Right. And now he's being attacked for it, not only in the media, but by his own university. I mean, the, the really tr troubling thing is that, you know, the, the scientific uh, evidence that he was bringing forth and, and still um, is bringing forth um, 
deserved to be considered in its own right, but so many people simply dismissed him or uh, maligned him because he happened to have accepted an appointment from a you know, presidential administration that people didn't like. Um, and so it, it kind of had, it was a, a political rejection of scientific evidence lay behind the attack on Scott Atlas, which I think was quite unfair uh, and, and really troubling, um, especially for those who value you know, uh, evidence science um, policy prescriptions that proceed from uh, that kind of effort as opposed to just proceed from opinion. Um, we, we need more Scott Atlases. I mean, he's a feisty guy. I admire that too. Maybe maybe not everything he ever said was just perfect, but um, it's, just not, it's just not right that he was attacked that way. Right. And I'm grateful to you, uh, Phil, and to your friends at the uh, American Institute for Economic Research for convening the Great Barrington Group, advancing you know, their work and the evidence that they've provided. Um, we have um, uh, really benefited from what you provided. Oh, one last comment from one of our friends on the line. Uh, Dick says, uh, I, I like the surgical approach versus the meat axe. That's how he's, right. how he's characterizing the Great Barrington Solution. Dick says, I'm 84 in a retirement community and haven't had a single case among the 230 residents. A couple of workers, thanks so much for the seminar. So D Dick thanks you and I thank you, uh, Dr. Phil Magnus. And by the way, um, let me just mention that we have um, a couple of things coming out that will be of interest to you, Phil, as well as to our, our friends and supporters, and we hope the general public. In March, we are going to be issuing a California Golden Fleece Award, uh, which comes out and, and ironically awards um, state agencies in California that, you know, mess up something one way or the other. And they are uh, issuing that in mid-March on the, uh, COVID policy. And then uh, we have an issue of the Independent Review coming out in March also, which is a symposium on public health and policy in a free society, attempting to consider these issues from all the different angles that you and I have been talking about today. So I highly recommend uh, to all of our friends to pick up a copy of the Independent Review in March and take a look at that symposium. And finally, um, I don't want to forget to mention once again, Phil, that you've got this great book that's just been released called The 1619 Project, A Critique, uh, which is not on COVID, but it's on you know, Amer American history. Uh, very much worth reading too. So uh, to Dr. Philip Magnus uh, from AIER, thank you so much for giving us your time today. Oh, absolutely, and thank you for having me. We're very grateful, grateful to you, grateful to all of our friends who are members of our Lighthouse Society, support the work of the Independent Institute. Remember, you can always go to independent.org to find the latest on public policy related research and argument uh, and evidence. Uh, so to everybody, have a great day. Take care. Bye-bye.